Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is June 4th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, We're Off to Never Neverland. But should we use Atomidate for the rapid sequence intubation? And our guest skeptic is Dr. Amber Gombash. She is an emergency physician in Concord, North Carolina. Welcome to the SGM, Amber. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. Well, you reached out to me about this and wanted to know my thoughts on a recent systematic review and meta-analysis. And I said, hey, why not come on the SGM and be the guest skeptic? I was so excited when I got your email and I thought you had to be a celebrity to be on your show. Well, you are a celebrity now and you do not need to be a, a celebrity. You just need to be interested in providing the best care for patients based on the best evidence. So I have found out a little bit more about you before we started hitting record. But you know what? The listeners don't know anything about you. I mean, that must have been the shortest introduction. She's an emergency physician. <laughs> like, Okay, we at least we know where you are. So, hey, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, I just graduated from residency at Metro Health in Cleveland, Ohio, and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, like a new, any new grad, I'm trying to stay up to date on literature. And one of the amazing pharmacists I work with now, Rocky Bastian, sent me this article about Atomidate. And I was like, oh, I'd love to hear this reviewed with your skeptical eye. Okay, first of all, pharmacists. I love pharmacists. They help me be a better physician and give better care. But you have a pharmacist named Rocky? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, He's that amazing. is awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. All right. And um, now I understand, you know, in the United States, pro sports and athletes and all this stuff, it's a big deal. Like Ohio, I think that's a big football state. And now you're moving to North Carolina. Have you had to change allegiance? Have you had to change your like whole wardrobe with regards to sweatshirts and things like that? Uh, or, or you don't do sports? Well, I went to medical school at The Ohio State University, so I will be a Buckeye till I die. Okay. All right. So we've covered that then. Hey, why are you so interested in this topic though? What got you sort of fired up about you know, rapid sequence intubation and what induction agent to use? I just like, I guess because I, I intubate people a lot, it's probably my favorite procedure in the emergency room. And I'm always like, well, they always ask what, what induction agent should we draw up? And I'm always thinking, oh, automate. that's like the one that's kind of keeps you even keel. And then I read this and I was like, oh, that's, that's an interesting point. So, so it gave you a bit of a pause there looking at this, mm -hmm. uh, systematic review. Now, have you noticed that there's a cultural difference coming from Ohio to North Carolina? Because I know that a lot of things that we do in emergency medicine, because we don't have a lot of high quality evidence to say thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that. It can be regional. So, you know, in, I know in one part of Canada, we tend to use more chemical cardio version, you know, you start getting towards Ottawa where the aggressive Ottawa protocol and procainamide. And then as you move West, we get more into electricity to cardiovert people with rapid AFib. So did you notice a difference with regards to induction agent was like automate the big thing? Was it a Buckeye thing? And then you move down to North Carolina. I don't even know what the North Carolina, oh, geez, Lauren Westifer would be upset. North Carolina Tar Heels. Did I get that right? Is it the Tar Heels? I yeah, you don't know. know. Yeah, you've got to, oh my God, he's asking me this question. I've only been in North Carolina for a couple of months. Give me a break. Um, 
So, uh, Lauren, I'm, I'm looking forward to your angry email and Twitter post about how I don't know. I think it's North Carolina, the Tar Heels. It's all coming back to me. I think it's the Tar Heels. So did you notice that there was some kind of difference between induction agents and the culture of the different places you've worked? I think autonomy has been pretty big both places from what I could tell based on what my colleagues are doing. It's interesting because automate is is it's nice and smooth, right? When hemodynamically, it's oh, it's so smooth. But I I don't have access to it in a lot of the places I work where I go out to these rural centers and do this outreach and try to prevent small rural what you would call critical access hospitals from closing. And uh, a lot of them don't have automate, so I haven't used it in a long time. And so I've sort of stuck with, you know, propofol if their blood pressure is, you know, really solid, pretty good, even high, uh, because it does have a tendency to drop it and sort of gravitate more towards ketamine if they're on the softer side. And so there's like nuances in there and it all depends on the specific patient. So I haven't been using automate and I haven't seen it used a lot in the in the areas that I'm working. So Maybe it maybe it's a maybe it's more of a US thing. We'll find out on a Twitter poll, I guess, later this week. Well, we bantered around a lot in the background here. It's fun to work with new enthusiastic attendees. So why don't you just give us a case and we'll get more into it? Um, you have a critically ill patient that you are preparing to intubate and wonder if the use of automate as your induction agent increases mortality. Intubation is something that we've covered a few times on the SGEM. There was the episode with physician assistant Chip Lang on the use of point of care ultrasound or POCUS to confirm tube placement. I got us some feedback from our good friend Scott Weingart over at MCRIT. And our, our usual go to guest skeptic for airway publications has been the superstar paramedic and PA, Missy Carter. One aspect that has not been well covered on the SGEM is the choice of induction agent when intubating patients. There was an episode 10 years ago looking at the use of automate in septic patients, SGEM number 44. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis reporting an associated increase in adrenal insufficiency and all-cause mortality with the use of automate to intubate septic patients. Yeah, this has gone back a long time, a decade. That was 20 13. And that was with um, my good friend, Sunil Upati, a member of the Best Evidence in Emergency Medicine, or BEAM group. Now, we have covered this issue on a more recent episode that looked at an unblinded, single-center, randomized trial comparing automidate versus ketamine in an adult population requiring emergency endotracheal intubation. And that was SGEM 356. Now, the primary outcome showed an absolute increase in all-cause mortality of 8% at seven days. All-cause mortality, 8%, absolute increase at one week for patients allocated to the automate group. This outcome was no longer statistically significant when you looked at their secondary outcome, which was 28-day all-cause mortality. Now, there were multiple issues with this trial, and you can go back and listen to that episode. But one of the issues was a lack of masking, i.e. blinding. Uh, We were concerned about some selection bias and the primary outcome of all-cause mortality at seven days. Automate is often used as the induction agent in critically ill patients due to its fast onset and hemodynamically neutral nature. Smooth. (laughs) However, it is hypothesized that automate may increase the risk of organ dysfunction and death 
by the suppression of cortisol production through inhibition of 11-beta-hydroxylase. This goes back to at least 2009, the Kedestead study. That trial found that in a critical care setting, there was an increase in adrenal insufficiency in the group receiving etomidate. And there have been multiple randomized trials now studying the effects of etomidate as an induction agent on adrenal function and mortality. These studies have reported mixed results, with some finding a statistically significant increase in mortality. There was another systematic review and meta-analysis published two years ago, back in 2021, that reported an associated increase in adrenal suppression and mortality with etomidate. However, this review combined high-level studies, five randomized trials, with low-level studies, nine post-hoc and 15 retrospective studies. So there's a concern about GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. Why combine high-quality studies with low-quality studies? So what's the clinical question, Amber? Does etomidate used as an induction agent cause an increased mortality in critically ill adults? And the reference? Kotani et al., Atomity as an Induction Agent for Endotracheal Intubation in Critically Ill Patients, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Trials, Journal of Critical Care, April 2023. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? Critically ill adults undergoing emergency endotracheal intubation for critical illness. Yeah, and so they had a few exclusions, and they were talking about adults, so they define that as 16 or older, and so pediatric patients defined as 15 years of age or younger were excluded from the trial. They didn't want to have patients that Atomidate was used as an infusion, so it had to be a bolus, an induction agent. They didn't want non-randomized trials, so this was not observational studies or retrospective analyses, those types of things. They also excluded systematic reviews, commentaries, editorials of the literature, and studies not addressing the question at hand. So let's talk about the intervention. Atomidate. Yeah. Okay. And what did they compare it to? Any other induction agent. Yeah. And so they had a variety of agents. They had ketamine, midazolam, thiopenthal, and then a combo, things like ketamine plus midazolam or ketamine plus propofol, so ketofol. What was their outcome? And specifically, what was their primary outcome? Mortality at the main time point defined by trial authors. Yeah, and so that's an important point. It was the time point defined by the author. So different studies had different time points. Some studies looked at mortality in the intensive care unit, others in hospital. Some looked at 24 hours, 7 days, 28 days, and the longest one went out to 30 days. How about the secondary outcome? Development of adrenal insufficiency. So the author's conclusions were, quote, this meta-analysis found a high probability that atomidate increases mortality when used as an induction agent in critically ill patients with a number needed to harm of 31. All right, Amber, let's go through the quality checklist for therapeutic systematic reviews. And there's only seven questions for this one. So the first question is the clinical question. Do you think it's sensible and answerable? Yes. Do you think the search for studies was detailed and <sighs> Exhaustive. Yes. Two investigators searched PubMed, Embase, and the Cochrane Library. They included unpublished research from clinicaltrials.gov as well. Yeah, so it sounds like they made an effort to get into the gray literature there. 
the primary studies, were they of high methodologic quality? No. Out of the 11 studies, five were graded as low-risk bias, five had some concerns, and one as high-risk. The highest risk weighted only 0.6%. Okay, so with the high-risk study, the one study, it didn't add a lot of weight, but there was five studies that were graded low-risk and five studies that had some concerns. The fourth question, the assessment of studies were reproducible? Yes. The outcomes, that outcome of all-cause mortality, do you think that's clinically relevant to patients? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Alive or dead, that's pretty relevant. All right. Uh, there was low statistical heterogeneity for the primary outcome. Yes. Yeah, not to spill the candy dish at the front door. It was a nice round number, zero, but we'll talk about that a little bit more in the nerdy section. And the final question, the treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically relevant? Unsure. Yeah, we have some uncertainty around that one. All right, let's get into the results. The authors identified 11, my second favorite number, by the way, randomized trials that fulfilled their inclusion and exclusion criteria. These trials included just over 2,700 patients. Of the 11 studies, like I said, they compared it to ketamine in four studies, midazolam in four studies, thiopenthal in one study, the combo of ketamine and midazolam in one study, and ketophol in one study. What was the key result? There is a high probability that automidate increases mortality when used as an induction agent in critically ill patients. All right, let's put a point on that primary outcome, which was all-cause mortality. Give us some numbers. Automidate increased mortality at the main time point defined by trial authors in 23% versus comparator 20%. Yeah, so there was a 3% absolute difference in mortality. So this gives a number needed to harm, and the harm would be death of 31. Yes, and a risk ratio of 1.16 with a 95% confidence interval spanning from 1.01 to 1.33, a P of 0.03 and an I squared of 0%. So it was statistically significant, and that heterogeneity defined by the I squared statistic, the heterogeneity of the outcome was 0%. But let's talk about that secondary outcome. And I think people are more confident about this result. And this is about the adrenal insufficiency. Automidate increased development of adrenal insufficiency in 21% versus comparator 10%. Yeah, so you can see that that 11% absolute difference obviously was much bigger in, in, in magnitude than a 3% difference, but all-cause mortality is, um, it's more objective, uh, might be more patient-oriented uh, than adrenal insufficiency, which would be a lab-oriented outcome or a loo, and maybe not as much a poo or patient-oriented outcome. And that gave a um, risk ratio of two, and it was statistically significant, and again, the I-squared was zero. All right. Sounds like we're already talking a little bit nerdy since we're talking about heterogeneity. So um, let's get into the talk nerdy section. And I have my favorite number of, uh, of nerdy points I wanted to make. So there are five. And I'm going to let you, as the new grad, the new attending, give the first nerdy point. 30.1. Risk of bias. Out of the 11 studies, five were graded as low risk bias, five had some concerns, and one as high risk. The highest risk weighted only 0.6%. Yeah, so less than 1% for the high risk of the uh, total cohort. Now, most 
of the large trials included in this systematic review were open label. So Machete, 30%, Punt, 11%, and Power, 16%. So let's say, and they told me there'd be more math, but that's 41, 50. So that's like 57%. So the majority of the trials, the majority of the patients, sorry, included in the systematic review were in an open label study. The other large trial, the other large randomized trial was a single blinded or single mass study, and it made up an additional 24% of the data set. This lack of masking could have introduced bias into the results and bias, of course, being defined as something that systematically moves us away from the quote unquote truth, with the truth being the best point estimate of an observed effect size. Nerdy point two, mortality outcome. The included trials used a wide range of time points for all cause mortality. It ranged from as short as 24 hours in the powers 2021 study to as long as 30 days in the driver 2014 study. Five studies were hospital mortality and one study was intensive care unit mortality. The authors did request mortality data at a longer time point from original trials, but unfortunately did not get responses. Yeah, that is is unfortunate. I wish um, authors would be a bit more responsive when they um, get people interested in their data and that they could share it. All right, so nerdy point number three, loss of statistical significance. If you include the secondary outcome of 28-day all-cause mortality data from the Machette trial, which represented 30% of the systematic review data, the statistical difference goes away. That risk ratio was 1.07, but that 95% confidence interval span the line of one or no statistical difference. And we'll put a forest plot in there for you to see that actual data. It's good to remember the potential biases in the original trials. We already mentioned that the Matchett trial was an open label trial. There were additional concerns of it being a single center with the Code Blue team being run by anesthesiologists. The patients in the Matchett trial were also not included consecutively. More than a thousand patients were excluded from the trial with 800 due to clinical circumstances, clinician preference for usual care. The trial only had 801 patients total, with 800 being excluded for seemingly subjective reasons. This raises the concern of selection bias that cannot be controlled for in the systematic review and meta-analysis. Yeah, so I think that's an important point. It's always good to go back to the primary literature to look at the quality of the studies and some of the limitations of the studies that go into making the sausage, which is the systematic review and meta-analysis. And they excluded 800 patients to end up with 801 patients. And the exclusions were, yeah, they did seem somewhat subjective for, you know, clinical circumstances, which I understand, but, and clinical preference for usual care. But, you know, again, you're not taking consecutive patients. So we can't, we need to be careful not to over-interpret that. And, and, and since it was such a big part of the data set, I think that's a really important and I also don't want people to interpret that, you know, we said it was run by the code blue team by anesthesiologists. That's just the data point, like, because we're talking about what we're going to do in the emergency department and running a code by anesthesiologists in the hospital somewhere in the ICU, or not in the emergency department may introduce some external validity things. But there's also one other issue that I wanted to bring up on this third nerdy point, and that was the issue of survival and survival with good neurologic function. Because we saw in the paramedic two trial, and if people remember, 
The Paramedic 2 trial was a 2018 New England Journal of Medicine publication, randomized control trial, placebo control trial, and it reported an increase in survival to hospital and survival to hospital discharge in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, or OCAs. So this Australian study, they looked at OCA patients, and they, and they randomized them to epinephrine or placebo. And when they did that, they did find more survival. However, there was no statistical difference in good neurologic outcomes at hospital discharge or at three months. So that means that increase in hospital survival must have been an increase in survival with poor neurologic function. And I don't think that's a great patient-oriented outcome. I don't think that's the goal is to save people who are damaged neurologically and have significant deficits. But we did a podcast on that. That was SGEM number 238. And you can look at that. 30.4. Lots of different controls slash comparators. These trials did not just compare atomidate to one other induction agent like ketamine, but rather a variety of agents. When comparing atomidate with just ketamine, the data still demonstrated an increase in mortality with atomidate. Yeah, but it was interesting. You know, the, the I-square metric or measure for heterogeneity in this subgroup, which the outcome was mortality, in this subgroup was 30%. Well, the overall statistical heterogeneity for Atomidate versus any other induction agent was reported at 0%. We'll put the forest plot in that, and you could find that in the supplementary publication. And so that's why, you know, yes, Jim, we, we go the, we, we dig into the layer. We're like onions. We have layers. We go into the layers. 30.5, different patients. These were not just ED patients. Some were from out of hospital, some were ED patients, and some were from the ICU. There was also a diversity of critically ill patients, medical and surgical patients. Some patients had more cardiovascular morbidities than other patients. This might make the results more generalizable, but could also mean that the results do not apply to the individual patient. Yeah, and that's that's a basic fundamental challenge with evidence-based medicine, and that is taking the literature which investigates a population, and that population might be quite homogeneous or it might be quite heterogeneous, but still taking a population and distilling that down to treating one patient, because we have an N of one when we're about to do an induction. So we have one patient that we're concerned about. So the whole idea of evidence-based medicine, that's one of the challenges because that Venn diagram um, showing, you know, the literature, which should inform our care, but we want to know if it's going to work on this patient. And so we need to use our good clinical judgment in our clinical situation and what's happening at the time. And of course, consider the patient's values and preferences. So there's moderate level evidence suggesting an increase in mortality using Atomidate. However, not for the longest follow-up available didn't show an increase in mortality. And it didn't give us any information on survival with a more patient-oriented outcome of survival with good neurologic function. Well, those were the uh, five nerdy points there, Amber. Uh, let's comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. We would have been less definitive and more uncertain with our conclusions. The data suggests a single dose of Atomidate may increase mortality in the short-term setting for critically ill adults, although further research is needed to determine its effects on long-term mortality. Yeah, we would have been a little softer, a little less definitive on that uh, conclusion. 
How about how about the SGEM bottom line then? It is still uncertain if using Atomidate as an induction agent decreases the patient-oriented outcome of survival with good neurologic function in critically ill patients requiring emergent endotracheal intubation. Yeah, because we want to we want to see is there is there more than just a suggestion or sing, signal of harm there that we are going to cause an increase in mortality or an increase in survival with poor neurologic function. Um, and we, ju- we just don't have that information yet. But like many things in emergency medicine, we need to make decisions with limited information. You know, uh, the evidence may be mixed and we still have to make a decision. You have to, like it comes down to, okay, what induction agent are you going to pick? So how are you going to resolve this case that you presented? As you prepare to intubate your critically ill patient, you ask the pharmacist, Rocky, draw up ketamine as my induction agent. All right. And, uh, you know, now we sit back and reflect and say, how are you going to apply this information clinically? Because you'd routinely been using Atomidate up in Ohio and you're routinely using it in North Carolina. What are you going to do now? How are you going to apply this new systematic review publication clinically? Clinicians should use the induction agent that they think will be the best choice for successfully intubating the patient who needs an emergent definitive airway. Oh, I could have put there. It all depends. Yes, that would have been my answer. It all depends, right? You're going you're gonna to decide what to do in the best interest of the patient with the information you have at the time. But I can't put for every single SGEM episode, clinical application, yeah, it all depends. So um, what are you going to tell the patient though? Since your patient is critically ill and about to be intubated, you tell the ICU physician that you avoided Atomidate as your induction agent due to concerns about adrenal insufficiency and possible short-term mortality. So this does sound like it might change your clinical practice, Amber. I think it might. I've always liked ketamine, though, as well, but I think I might use it a little more often. All right. Well, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Matt Gobel. Uh, He is on Twitter at NerdyMedic. He knew that Dr. John Epley first described the Epley Maneuver, in 1980. So Amber, what's the question this week? What year was Atomidate published as a novel hypnotic agent? Oh, and I'll give people a hint. It wasn't my favorite and best era, the 1980s, but it was before I was born. So we're talking a long time ago. Amber, this has been so much fun. Thank you for coming on the SGEM. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking nerdy. I, I, you know, I just love it. And I love thinking about, okay, we're all on team patient, new information. What are we going to do with that information? And how can I incorporate that? Or if I should incorporate that into the management of patients. So I really appreciate you bringing this article to my attention. You're very welcome. I so enjoyed talking to you and talking nerdy with you. Well, good luck. I mean, starting, I mean, you're at another stage in life, right? You know, there's all these little stages in life that we go through. And it's like, okay, got to get into university and then got to get into medical school. And then, okay, whew, okay, now I got to get the residency. Whew, now I got to get, a t- you know, and, you know, they're all, yeah, they're just all stages in life. It just keeps going and going and going. So I hope you, I hope you really enjoy North Carolina there and uh, settle in well and uh, enjoy the job. Thank you so much. So uh, there's only one task left for you to do. Now, 
you probably haven't absorbed a North Carolina accent yet. So you're going to have to do this in your best Ohio accent. Now, I don't know if there is an Ohio accent to me because Ontario, Canada, Ohio, we're fairly close. So I'm not even sure if I'll pick anything up, but let's see if we do. Okay. So can you give the S gem tagline in your over the top thickest Ohio accent? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week.